Thank you, everyone. Thanks for giving us some thanks, uh, AJ. Thanks for giving us some community time. We really do appreciate that. That's who we are. We're not pretending to be anyone else or anything else. We're a group of people together on mission. So, Olivia, you're up, girl. All right, bring it, sister. We'll see what you got. Okay. <laughs> In fact, I shouldn't say that to you, should I? <laughs> Others maybe, but not to you. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. We, we have everything. Everything you need for life and godliness is here. Okay. Ooh. Okay. So we are reading Second Timothy three, ten through seventeen. Correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. <clears throat> Here we go. You, oh, all scripture is breathed out by God. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium. And at least Lystra. Lystra, good Lystra. girl. Yeah. Thank did you. Did you go to Vanguard? <laughs> yes, I did. Okay, just asking. Um, <laughs> which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm, as, as I did last week, I'm sitting, but it's an intentional sitting because I don't preach well sitting. Even as a school teacher, I didn't sit and teach. But I want to invite you into my table as if we were at home. Because when God began to speak to us about the series... It really was far more around a table to dialogue and to wrestle with the text and the implications of the text. And so I'm honoring that uh, around this little table. 1968, January of that year, um, in what is now infamously called the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the Viet Cong amassed about 85,000 people under the watchful but dismissive eyes of the CIA and the military intelligence. And on the Lunar New Year of January 68, they attacked estimated 125 different cities and outposts. And um, the Lunar New Year has been tra was traditionally viewed as a sacred time in the combat between the North and the South and the United States. Many of the Viet Namese, the southern soldiers had been sent home, and so there was this massive surprise. Their commitment was to overwhelm 85,000 troops hit at the same time, artillery, wave upon wave of uh, soldiers, and uh, the battle lasted initially a, a week, some went on to a month, and some went on to two months. And um, I, I guess, and, and I have a curiosity with military intelligence and military history, so the story in and of itself would be interesting, but I was listening to someone tell that this week, and at the same time, I heard of a number of you who'd had nightmares, demonic disruptions in your sleeping patterns. And to an educated, sophisticated Western mind, that seems incredibly strange and weird, but the moment you engage and frame it around spirituality and the journey of Jesus and the fact that we have an enemy, suddenly you begin to sit up and think, okay, something else is happening. We started a week, uh, last week with an invitation to the spiritual disciplines. 
Those of you who weren't here, unfortunately, we have not made that talk available online. It was an in-house family talk, and I, I chose not to make it available to anyone and everyone out there. It was very honest. It was very real. It was very truthful. But that invitation to a spiritual journey or spiritual set of disciplines and practices, it will not be simply ignored by the enemy. And so I want to just walk us through a little bit, firstly, around the enemy's backlash, because I want us to understand, dear friend, we are a people at war, and you cannot engage in a quest for deeper spirituality and transformation if you don't want the enemy to sit up and to take note. Is the price and the outworking worth the combat? That's the question you and I have to ask ourselves. Now, for me, if I can be brutally honest, because I've been doing this for such a long time, I would love to run interference for you. I would love to run in front of you and be part of the crew who clears the way to allow you an easier spiritual journey of transformation, or what the psychologists called a slow snow plow parent. Go in front and clear the way. In fact, Paul himself says this in Romans 9, for I wish that I myself were a curse, that I would take your curse and be cut from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, According to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Honestly, there are times I would love to run interference for you. I look at some of your faces. I look into some of your eyes. I feel sometimes the overwhelming hug. And we hug, but way more than we're, because we're charismatic. Because there's an authentic affection. And sometimes the affection is the strength we need to fight our fight. I need to know someone sees me. I need to know someone hears me. I need to know someone is standing with me in this very dastardly dark space. The enemy is not silent. So I can't run interference for you, but I with the other leaders can pray for you. And this is the verse that rings in my heart very often. Galatians 4.19, my dear children, for who I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. Probably or arguably one of the primary responsibilities we have in father and mothering a community is to be as those who are in childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's deep and passionate for us. Let me just give you a quick little cameo window into the enemy, and I want to touch on four things very quickly. Are you with me? The invitation to a spiritual discipline. Tonight, we're looking at the sacred scriptures. I want us to understand these four things, and they're way more than that. Number one, the enemy comes. That's why I used the military illustration. They wanted to overwhelm. They wanted to surprise. They wanted to be persistent and force the Americans and the Vietnamese to bow their knees by sheer force. One, the enemy comes to rob, kill, and to destroy. John 10.10. 10. You probably know it if you've been a Christian for a while. He comes to rob us of our human dignity. He comes to kill our sense of worth, and he comes to destroy the essence of our calling. Please know that he's got his target on you. The second thing I want to say related to that is he awaits an appointed time. Let me try and explain it this way. We often think that, the, subconsciously think, the enemy like Jesus is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. Now, we know that's not true. When God meets with the devil in Job, he says, where have you been? Where have you been? Well, I, I've been around the world. I've been, I've been hither and thither. When Jesus beat him up in Luke chapter 4 in the wilderness, this little verse pops up. He awaits an opportune time. When's an opportune time? The moment you put your hand up and say, Jesus, I am super serious about you. I want to walk in your will and ways. I want to leave behind my brokenness. I want to leave behind my sins and the things that so easily ensnare me. The enemy says, okay, I'm noted. Sunday night, there's a Monday morning coming. And I'm going to make sure Monday morning is such that it isn't worth it. 
I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be patient, whatever it might be. And the enemy comes and bites at your heels like a wild dog. Persistent. You know the wild dog kills. The wild dog doesn't kill like a lion or a leopard where they grab you by the throat or the lion anywhere really. Lion kills brutally. The leopard grabs you by the throat here, drags you down and uh, suffocates you. But the wild dogs run in a pack and they've got endless energy. If you've ever watched a wild dog pack hunt, they, they run. And as one gets tired and backs off, someone else runs. And eventually the buffalo or the uh, impala or whatever tire and then the whole pack come in. And they just shred the thing and they eat while the animal's still running. They'll grab a mouthful, let him or her bleed to death. That to me is a picture of the sustained, persistent pursuance of the enemy. Dear, dear friends, do you understand you cannot do this by yourself? You are too vulnerable to the demonic wild dog. He will hunt you down. He will. He'll wait for an opportune moment, and then he'll come running in, running hard, and, and will, I, let me not run ahead of myself. So he comes to Rob Kellen to destroy. He comes at an opportune time, and then he comes in like a flood. In, uh, I think it's on the screen there, Isaiah 59, 19, but it's in the King James Version. It says, the enemy comes in like a flood. He comes like 85,000 soldiers to overwhelm you. Please understand as best as we can some of the demonic practices. We don't focus on the demonic. I don't even like talking about it. I struggle to underline it in my Bible because I, I find him so fiendishly revolting. But the enemy comes in like a flood. And remember this story in uh, Matthew 20, uh, 12. I'm going to read from Eugene Peterson's translation. When a defiling evil spirit is expelled from someone, it drifts along through the desert looking for an oasis. Some unspecting soul, it can bedevil. But when it doesn't find anyone, it says, hmm, I will go back to my old haunt. On return, it finds the person spotlessly clean. I'm praying, I'm fasting, I'm in the text, I'm in fellowship, I'm walking honestly in vulnerability, I'm in confession, I'm walking transparently, and the enemy says, okay. But then it runs out and rounds up seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all move in, whooping it up. The, spirit, the person ends up far worse off than if he had never gotten cleaned up in the first place. This is what this generation is like. You may think you have cleared out the junk from your lives and gotten ready for God. Here it comes. But you weren't hospitable to his kingdom message, and now all the devils are moving back in. Isn't that powerful? So we're not replacing the void that gets created as we address darkness in all of its personal form with the scriptures and whatever else. And so the enemy just waits for an, for an opportune moment and then like the wild dogs run in. Now, does that seem super scary? Well, it is if you try and do it alone. It is if it's a high emotional spiritual investment. It is if you're dependent on gatherings and cool worship and people praying over you, prophesying over you. That is very scary because you leave that space alone. Clean, but alone. And then the enemy comes back and says, let me go to my old haunt and see what it's like. Remember Elijah when he called fire from heaven? There's a weariness that comes sometimes, folks. Please hear me. I, I, I want you to understand this. There, there is a weariness. That we, we had a young girl uh, live with us at Southlands. She was about 19 at the time. And a broken family. I mean, yeah, I don't even want to describe all her brokenness. But she came to live with us. And uh, every night she would come home, one o'clock, two o'clock. Would that be fair reflex? I don't want to distort the story, my love. Is that true? She was always tired, 
always discouragement, doesn't know why the devil is beating her up, doesn't know why things aren't going right for her. Meryl sat her down one day and said, I've been watching. You never get to bed early. No, 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 you know, it's the way I'm made. I go to sleep late. Uh, you never have vegetables. No, burgers. I'm, I'm a burger girl. You never wake up and engage in the text. Oh, no, no, I'm exhausted. I've got to sleep in. And Meryl said, why don't you try this? Why don't you try going to bed early tonight? Why don't you have some vegetables with us? Why don't you put your sneakers on and go for a walk? Is it a surprise that within days she could not believe how good God was? She could not believe the breakthrough she had and how the enemy was just leaving her alone. No, she was just eating vegetables and going to sleep early. And um, See, all of those things, we've got to have a look. Where are your soft underbellies? Where is the enemy when he comes into you? So if you struggle with pornography, 10 o'clock your phone is off and it's tucked away and you don't open it. Most of your viewing is later than that, not exclusively. So you just turn that off, put it away, put a, a, what do you call it, security thing on. It's not, folks, that difficult to engage in a spiritual battle where we can have victory on a regular basis. Last week we touched on pornography, but it could be alcohol, food as comfort, eating disorders, narcotics, sexual assault, and other forms of trauma that bruise and damage your sense of humanness. But God has given us some exquisite tracks to rediscover all of these things. Would I love deliverance to be the way we all get victory? My goodness, wouldn't that be helpful? You got issues? Come, we'll pray deliverance in the name of Jesus. Glory to God. And, and we finished all of this, and you are free, and you go, and we all live happily ever after. Well, thank the Lord that happens to some. But for most of us, Exodus 23, 30, little by little, they took the land. One battle at it, one day at a time, one decision at a time, one text at a time, one worship song at a time, one hi, it's me, I need you to pray right now. Because this is all about grace, isn't it? There are three things I love about grace. The first is, according to the clever people, is that it's undeserved mercy. So every morning I wake up and the promise is your mercies are new every morning and I take an armful of mercy and I just pour it over myself like I have my coffee, like I have my toast or breakfast or whatever. I just apply his mercy. Oh God, your mercy is enough for today. Today. I can say no to the things that hold me captive. Today. I can drink on your divine empowerment today. We had the Shabbat meal with uh, uh, John Mark and Tammy last night and the kids and it was fabulous. And I was typing these notes this morning and just thinking of a very sweet moment which was a, is a practice they have which, which we've not done with rhythmic regularity and that's to bless our kids. And so I watched John Mark bless his kids and it was incredibly sweet and beautiful and then they said, so I thought, oh that's great, that's what they do. And then it's like, all right, Chris, you next. And I've got Tion here. And then it's like, do I do that to Dana and Stu as well? Is that what I do? Sorry, my love. Yeah, and I, I did. I, it was an incredibly, and I was unprepared. So it was just, but you see, it's that unmerited favor, the father heart speaking life over others. Do you honestly, friends, allow yourselves to be postured between your heavenly father who speaks favor over you? How do you counter the father of lies? What well, part of it is you just position yourself, oh, Father God, how am I doing? I mean, how am I doing from your point of view? Probably for about 40 years, I've started every morning writing, good morning, Father. Thank you. And then I list everything for which I'm grateful. And then I want to know what he says about me. People have many opinions about me, good and bad. It doesn't matter. It's what does he say about me. Are you with me? And so um, 
this Christian walk, dear friends, is not about my grit or my determination or my gutsiness or my ability to hold on and white knuckle it. It's a supernatural journey in which God, through his word, enables us to live this divine life. Don't you love Titus 2? For the grace of God has appeared. It's a person. Jesus is the grace of God. The grace of God appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, this grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So when I drink that grace in on a regular basis, it enables me to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. One more passage and then we'll move on. 2 Corinthians 12. Let this feed you, dear friends. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. I'm totally curious by what people say that is. Some say, well, actually, that's just a sickness or a disease or a person. It isn't. It's a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. T and I had a great conversation last Sunday night. At home, had dinner, Meryl was still in Greece. And uh, we spent probably, I don't know, bones, about an hour or something. And uh, I just loved sitting around our table and allowing the grace of God to percolate into that space. As we spoke through some difficult, some beautiful things, the enemy has a backlash. If I know it and I recognize it, I can deal with it. All right, let me move on quickly. Hopefully that's helpful. Uh, the wonder of the text. I am a fan of the scriptures. It's way more wonderful than Greek mythology, Shakespearean prose, oral African tradition, and I love oral African tradition or other philosophical writings or present-day fantasy literature. It's 66 books written by 40 authors. This is for you, Olivia. Having gone to Vanguard, I just thought I'd help you. 66 books, 40 authors. Over, and I hear different, I'm not clever enough to know, but people say in the region of 1,600 years or something, collaborated into one little book. Probably if I write my life story, it'll be bigger than this book. Or maybe not, it'll be about this book. There's a beauty and a wonder about the text in its law. Imagine with me for a moment in its law and its narrative and its poetry. And its, you, you, you. Okay, I'm, I can't sit anymore. <laughs> so when we got to Southland in 1996, there was a church and a school. And the school had never had a prom. The school had never had a prom. And so the kid said to me, because we were involved in the school, can't we just have a prom? I said, well, surprise, have you never had a prom? No, no, we're not allowed to have a prom. So, well, why? I, I don't really understand that. So anyway, I arm wrestled the staff to put on a prom, and then devastation of devastation. At the prom, the high schoolers were told they could dance close together, but you've got to be able to put a Bible between them. <laughs> I lie not. And so the senior staff walked with the biggest Bible I've ever seen. And I, and I thought, what is the message to those kids? It's a moral separator. That, that, that's what this book is. It's, it's, it's a book of rules and laws, normally out-fashioned and out-of-date. It's kind of how I'm supposed to live by moral obligation. Tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. This is a book of imagination and beauty, and color, and exploration, and transformation. And when I read it, not as a psalm that I have to read today, but as a king crying out to God because his soul is broken, because he's surrounded by his enemy, who are like lions roaring at him, surely it cannot be more compelling than that. If you're married, and your intimacy life is, is, is a train smash. Surely there's nothing more compelling than opening up the Song of Psalms and to your embarrassment reading how a man describes his woman. I did a wedding many years ago. 
Didn't really know the couple well, but I knew it would be a great opportunity for evangelism. We went to the reception afterwards, and as they got up, the husband did to give a speech. His wife leaned across to tell him something, and he turned and he said, there we go. She started whinging and, what do you call it? Nagging already. Does it surprise you it didn't last long? Of course it isn't. It nowhere reflected the wonder and the beauty of a couple mesmerized with each other who look at each other with a dream of an imaginative romantic compelled by the scriptures. There is life here. I am such a fan of the scriptures, dear friends. And it's not because I'm some kind of super guru intellect. It's because I have seen God do things. I sat down this afternoon, this morning, and this is what I wrote. Soul renovation. What does the scripture do? It renovates my soul, a broken soul. And how God, like Humpty Dumpty, puts me together again, or who, like the puzzle expert, brings all the pieces together. When I can't make sense of my soul, God puts my soul together a piece at a time. It rekindles my imagination. It isn't there to be bland, black and white, without creativity and color. I love what Thomas Merton, the Catholic uh, mystic, said. By reading the scriptures, I am so renewed that all nature seems renewed around me and with me. The sky seems to be pure, a cooler blue, the trees a deeper green. The whole world is charged with the glory of God, and I feel fire and music under my feet. The the word of God rekindles my imagination that has been drained out of me by boring, repetitive educational systems. And suddenly I read the text and it becomes alive, the narrative and the poetry. It comes alive inside of me. It's an identity recreator. You know, my father, and you've heard me tell this, was an alcoholic. That's sadly what I remember in my growing up years. But I probably don't talk enough. Is he coming to Christ? on his knees, three o'clock in the morning, as he fell before God and said, God, I need you. Now, here's the beauty of the story. I know him, knew him. My siblings know him as an alcoholic. My kids do not. You see, your past doesn't have to forge your identity. My kids think of their grandpa as this amazingly funny guy who tells long stories over and over again, who lets them do things I would never do, and you can't believe how strict he was when I grew up. I couldn't put my hands on the table. We had to use the knife and fork. When we were finished the meal, we had to put the knife and fork together. I had to eat everything on my plate, literally everything. Not a pea was allowed to be left. You dishonor your mother if you don't eat the food that's in front of her. You eat that, you will not leave this table until you've eaten. Now, do you think, my kids think, their opa is that? What happens, dear friends, is that we craft an identity based on yesteryear, but the gospel and the power of the written written text is it recreates our identity. I'm no longer the person who dot, 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 dot. I'm now the person who's becoming dot, 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 dot. Are you with me? That is partly why I'm so mesmerized by this text. John Stott says it this way, the British theologian, we must allow the word of God, listen please, to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. That's the power of the text. It will confront us. If your identity is anywhere else but what the Father is creating you to become, please be ready to be fully confronted, fully disturbed, fully undermine our complacency, and fully overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. That's what the Word of God does. 
It restores our humanity. It redefines our morality. Um, some of you weren't here when uh, the team came back from Portugal. And Jeff, a South African guy, has planted a church in Lisbon. So he planted at the beginning of COVID. None of the team who were flying in to join him could. And so he just went, when they were allowed outdoors, to go from coffee shop to coffee shop and meet people. And he described some of the early table communities, home groups, full of people, but he and his wife, Jeff and Jane, completely unbelievers, having never walked with Jesus. And he said, Chris, we would sit at the table having dinner together, and two of the couples would exchange thoughts on how they do orgies. He said, I've never been in a home group quite like that before. But he said he felt God say, just preach the word, open up the scriptures, and teach from the text, and watch and see what I did. And he said the amazing thing was, within months, independently, the couples came to see him and said, we don't think we're supposed to do orgies, are we? Um, yeah, I guess you're not supposed to do them. See, because what the scriptures do is it redefines our morality. Let the word do its work. Our relationships are reconciled. A friend of mine, Terry Kruger, heard me preach one day. He was in our church. He ran outside and phoned his dad. He said, Dad, Terry. Well, that doesn't sound strange. Well, they hadn't spoken for 10 years. The word of God convicted him. He called his pops. He said, Dad, I love you. His mom called back 10 minutes later. And, Terry, are you, are you going to commit suicide? Why do you say that, Mom? Well, you haven't spoken to your dad for 10 years. They, his dad died, best of mates. Meryl knows. Because that's what the word does. If we let the word do it, you have to be very stubborn, and me, to resist the God who is the reconciler of relationships. Eternity rediscovered, sexually renewed. Can, can I just say a little bit about that? Um, I had this little secretary about so tall at Southlands. When she first came to the church, I was very squeamish. She was wild, really wild. I kind of thought, are you, are you, do you know Jesus? Because you probably shouldn't F-bomb in regular language and conversation. She was so angry when she was a little girl, she was sexually abused by a family member. When she was 16, she snuck out, and she tells the story publicly. I'm not giving anything that she hasn't told. Her dad told her she wasn't allowed to go to a football party, and she snuck out and went to the football party. She got raped by, I think, five of the players. She came home, and she said... Dad, I was raped. He's, the only thing he could say was, I told you not to go. Never brought it up again, never mentioned it. And she realized that the only love she would ever get is between the sheep. So she slept around as often and as much as she could. By the time she stumbled into our world, one of the elders literally saved her from an abusive relationship, arrived at the apartment took her out of the apartment, packed her suitcase, and said, you're coming home to stay with me, as she carried her bruises from the abusive boyfriend. One day she was walking across the parking lot towards me. Dana was with me, and I looked at her, and I said, uh, Kristen, you look beautiful today. would never say that if my daughter wasn't there. She looked beautiful. And she told me later, she said, no man had ever said anything like that without any other gender but to get her into bed. In the ministry that our team did with her, she would literally, why the F is my savior a man? I don't want a man to save me. Why can't my savior be a woman? Now I'm saying all of that because she could have been identified by her experience. But she got hold of Jesus. She ended up being my secretary for about two years. Beautiful girl, loved people, cared for people, 
It's kind and generous because she refused to have herself locked down by yesteryear's identity. Folks, that's what the Bible does. I had the privilege of doing her wedding to one of the men in our church who was a widow. His wife died in two, two days, something quick. She had a, a, a brain aneurysm. I'm, I'm, I, to this day, I am moved by her story. I'm moved by the beautiful woman who walked down the aisle to Robert, her hulker hulk. She loved him, and he loved her. Why? Because he married a Christian, Kirsten, who was transformed by the power of the word of God. We are not oblivious to where we've come from, but the word of God doesn't keep us there. The word of God changes us, transforms us into his image and into his likeness. I'm going to land with a couple of scriptures. Um, Let me read one. You ready, Fouch? How can a young man stay on the path of purity, or young person, I'm sorry? How can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? I seek you with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. It's Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's nothing harsh in that Beautiful passage of scripture. There's nothing judgmental. There's nothing accusatory. And I'm sure we could have all of that. There is a grace that draws me to desire a pathway of purity. Not this kind of religious holiness. That's a set of rules. How long can my skirt be? Not that I wear a skirt. Um, You know, how big can my belly button gap? I mean, those are just such insignificant things in a far greater beauty, in a far greater holiness, in a far greater Christ-likeness. How can a young person stay on the path of purity but by living according to your word? When we went through the lawsuits, those of you who don't know it, for another time, every single day for about two and a half years, I read my normal text and then I read Proverbs. Over and over again, I said, Lord, I want to know how to handle this. The businessmen came to me and said, leave it with us, we'll counter-sue them. I said, don't you read the Bible? The Bible said, do not sue your brother. Do not bring your brother before the courts. But they are doing that to us. It doesn't mean it's right. For two and a half years, I led Proverbs over and over. When we were exonerated and cleared of all wrongdoing, I did not read Proverbs for two years after that. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Oh, I seek you with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might sit, that I might not sin against you. We'll spend time in the weeks which lie ahead as we dive into what it looks like to hide his word in our hearts. But Terry, I've asked him to come up Lead us into communion. Uh, We've got some time. Thanks, Fouch. For those of you who don't know, Terry and I have been friends since 1981. We ran marathons together. You won't look at it by seeing two chunky middle-aged people. Are we middle-aged or are we old now? Old. We old. Yeah. And uh, we've been on team together. We've planted churches together. And Terry is uh, the pastor in our global Genesis Collective. Just a little story that, you know, when Chris stands up here and um, does all this stuff, I'm witness to 40 years of being stuck in the scriptures because he does that every day. I've lived in his home. I've been there without fail. What you get is an overflow 
of 40 years or longer, actually, of being in the text. And before we just go, go into the communion, I want to share this, is that sometimes we need to take a text and go deep in it. Um, a good literary mentor to me, Dallas Willard, said, it is better in one year to have 10 good verses transferred into the substance of our lives than to have every word of the Bible flash before our eyes. All right? It's good to read the whole Bible, to get the picture, but you want substance. You want life inside of you. You want to draw the nutrients out. Eugene Peterson in his book, Eat This Book, which is a wonderful book, said this, we need reading that enters our souls as food enters our stomachs, spreads through our blood, and becomes holiness and love and wisdom. When you take the word of God and you chew it and you eat it and you saturate yourself in it, then it becomes part of you. And when they cut you, you bleed the word. That's the test. The test is not do you know the word when things are going well. The test is do you know the word when you bleed? In the hard time, that's when you know. Um, it's almost impossible for you all to know the Bible from back, from cover to cover. It's impossible. A mentor of mine in, in the early, like 2000, for two years, Dr. Bobby Clinton, I spent two years with him. He said, every believer, average, has about five key portions of the text that they own. A pastor might have 20. That could be a character, a book, a verse, a psalm, a parable, whatever. Find those things and then saturate yourself in them. Get to know them inside and outside, backwards, forwards, because if you know those, it'll open up the rest of the text to you as well. Now, I'm saying a few things to lead us to a place. Ten years ago, I was watching a YouTube video. It was just, I think it's two minutes and 47 seconds long, and there was two young men interviewing Dallas Willard, and they asked him what his daily devotions were like. And he said, well, I'm rather busy. But every day, before I get out of bed, I process the Lord's Prayer in Psalm 23. Every day. And if I'm still in bed, I'll do it twice. I'll say it, and I'll think it through, and I'll process it, get lost in it. And I thought, if it's good enough for Dallas, that's good enough for me. Ten years... I've been in Psalm 23. Every day, almost every, I would say I've maybe missed five days in 10 years. And I don't do it at my desk, I do it in my bed. But it's led to lots of things. And I wanted to take a part of Psalm 23 for us this evening that leads us to the table. We don't have time to do a full Lectio Divina or Ignatian meditation. All these wonderful ways that we can enter the text. But I'm hoping that as we do this little bit, that you'll savor the little bite I give you. Don't stuff it down like McDonald's. Take a little taste and savor it. Put it in your mouth. Swirl it around. Draw everything out of it. Um, and we go from there. So, Psalm 23. Anyone read it? You've all read it. It's the most, most, probably the most common psalm in the Bible, most probably one of the most common texts in the scriptures that people know. And the question is, do you really know? Do you really know this psalm? And this week God spoke to me and he said, this psalm for you, and, this is, and it ties into this whole idea of warfare and the sacred text, is this psalm is for, is for you a way that your life cycles. And it cycles through the goodness of God, you know, He's our shepherd, leads us to still waters, we rest, all those things. But then we have dark valleys. And he's with us, and we come out of the dark valley, and then there's tables and beautiful life. I'm summarizing, as you can see. But everybody, without exception, goes through a dark valley. There's not one of you that, and if you haven't been through one, get your friends now. Because you will go through one. Every single person. And you will go through more than once. Because they cycle. And this is what the Lord said to me this week. He said, the reason you keep going through dark valleys is to remind you that you haven't yet arrived. 
you still need me. And if you have no dark moments, no struggles, no war, you think, ah, oh, this is so easy. And you never go deep. You never develop the character that God wants us to develop. And Psalm 23 helps us in this. So if, here's three points. Think through them. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is with me in the dark valley. The Lord prepares a table for me. Does that sound like Psalm 23? I've just taken three bits, key bits, for us to think through. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is with me in the dark valley. And the Lord prepares a table for me. Think through this. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Because we have a vast array of meaning around that. Or we all think different things when we say the Lord. But actually, in the title of a book, but it's the Lord has a name. And the Lord there is the word? Anybody? Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. And I'd love you to close your eyes as I'm saying these things. I want you to picture things. I want you to use your imagination. Yahweh is my shepherd. This Lord, this God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush when Moses asked, Who shall I say? Is sending me to bring my peop these people to deliverance. And the Lord said to Yahweh, I am who I am, the ever-present now, always sticking with you like glue, God. That is the one who is your sh good shepherd. It's not a random Lord. It's not a random royalty from the British Isles. It's Yahweh, the ever-present present now stuck to you like glue covenant keeping God that is the Lord who is your shepherd and Jesus identifies himself with that Lord he says I am the good shepherd and that should blow your mind see it's that Lord who's with you in the dark valley it's the one who's stuck to you like glue. It's the one who never leaves you. It's the one who keeps his covenant. It's the one that's revealed himself as father. That one is the one with you in your dark valley. And ask yourself, what is my dark valley right now? Or I've come out of one. Is it an act, a place of spiritual warfare? Is it a place of just brokenness? Is it a place... Where it feels like God is not around. I can't hear him. I can't feel him. Are your finances cracking? Or is your relationship with your spouse under strain? Is there something in your, in your family? It doesn't matter. Whatever that dark valley is, God is with you. Are you struggling with some addiction, some sin? That God that Lord, Yahweh, the ever-present, always with you, stuck to you like glue, covenant-keeping Father, revealed in Jesus, he is with you. That Lord, that whose name is Yahweh, revealed as a Father, seen in Jesus, stuck to us, like glue, never leaving us, never forsaking us, covenant-keeping one, that God is the one who prepares a table for us on the other side of the dark place to remind us that we are still chosen, that we are still loved, that he's got us. That God. And God wants to renew your understanding of the table. Some were raised where there was not much on the table. I'm one of those. Scraps. Trying to put it together because of being poor. But the table that God puts before us is one that satisfies the deep longings of our heart. 
If God loves me, Terry Fouché, my table will not be laden with mushrooms. It shall not. But peas, that's okay. Because he's preparing a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He wants to demonstrate in a moment of war that he's on my side and he's given me everything that I need at that point in time to come out of darkness and face the enemy head on and have victory. It's that God who's with me in that valley that prepares that table for me, for us, for our community, for his church, for his family. When we come to this table that we're going to gather around this evening, this is not an ordinary table. This is the table of the Lord. There's a wonderful verse in Job, chapter 36, verse 16. I'll read it from the message. It's Elihu saying something to Job. Elihu should have actually been keeping quiet, but he, every now and then he did say some really good things. But he says this, Oh, Job. Remember, Job was in a dark place. He was in a valley. Oh, Job, don't you see how God is wooing you from the jaws of danger? How he is drawing you into wide open places, inviting you to feast at a table laden with blessings. This table, the one in front of me, the one in front of you here, is a table laden with blessings. As we look at it, we see grape juice and bread. But it represents so much more than that. It represents everything that Jesus has done on behalf of humanity, which includes you. It includes all the promises that have been made into the future that he's, that he's made to his people. Tied into the very end when there will be a great feast of the Lamb. A marriage supper of the Lamb that we will all sit around and enjoy. This table points to that. This table points backwards to the cross and the resurrection and the fullness of what Jesus has done. This table. This table is laden with blessings. If you would just look in. If you would just look beyond the natural elements, look in, say, use my imagination, Lord. I want to see what God has prepared for those who love him. It's all in that table. So I'd love for us to come to the table. Um, pour your little sippy cups. Take a piece of bread. Maybe break into twos or threes, threes or fours. Not, not too many. Remember we did this a few weeks ago. Tell something that you're grateful for because this table is a moment to pause and remember and express gratitude and feast upon Jesus' presence with us. That are right to remind us that in the fight, he's with us. In the valley, he's with us. And when you've all gotten you in your spaces, I'll, I'll just read a text and we will and go from there. So 